Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Kenneth Valpe, who is a research fellow at the Oxford Center of Hindu Studies and also at the Oxford Center of Animal Ethics. Hello, Kenneth. How are you? Hello, Raj. I'm quite well. Now, uh, for those listening to our podcast in the timeless time of the, of, of the present moment, um, we are actually separated by a number of time zones, are we not? I am currently on Eastern time. It's 8 a.m. in Toronto here, and you are where and when? I am in Eastern India uh, in a rural rural area north of Calcutta. And it's probably dusk there. It is. It's already dark. Yeah. Dawn in Toronto, <laughs> dusk in rural India. And for our listeners, whatever time they happen to be listening to this. So um, we're talking today about an interesting book called Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. Before we talk about the actual book, I want to make note that the book is available to any of you listening immediately um, via open access. There is a link in the description of the podcast whereby you will be able to download the book I want to say a little bit about open access and, and why you made that decision and, and what you think about that. That might be an interesting way to start. Okay. Um, when I saw this option uh, offered by the publisher, uh, the publisher is Palgrave Macmillan, uh, which is a subsidiary of Springer, Springer Nature, uh, which is a ver- very large international uh, academic publisher. Uh, when I saw this option, at first I was a bit shocked by the price tag uh, in order to to get open access for a monograph. Um, Palgrave charges seventeen thousand U.S. dollars, and I thought, okay, forget about that. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the, mo- the more I had a desire that the book be available, uh, that if I'm going to the trouble to research and write this book, uh, I just want as many people as possible who would be interested to read it, uh, to be able to read it. And that means uh, people who may not be academics as well as academics and so on. And of course, these this sort of academic mono, monograph um, at uh, the regular hardbound price would be 
probably somewhere around $100, which makes it very restricted. So talking with friends, talking with colleagues, the more I um, was encouraged that with some determined effort I could do the fundraising. So I did basically a kind of crowdfunding, but it was quite targeted to people I know, and uh, it became successful. The The whole idea, of course, is um, uh, open access is to make knowledge available to everyone um, without the restrictions that are there otherwise. And uh, I'm, I'm just inspired to be part of that, to participate in that model of knowledge dissemination. There's, a, there's certainly a transformation afoot, uh, a number of transformations, I think, um, not least of which, uh, in my case, for the ways in which young scholars function as scholars, whether they're at institutions or not. But certainly there's a transformation afoot in terms of um, publishing. And yeah. initially, um, I think pejoratively, you know, the idea of open access, uh, a colleague recommended it a couple of years ago, and I thought, no, 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 let, let's not do that. Uh, and now the more I think about it, uh, the more uh, um, the more sure I am that this colleague and I will be putting together a collective volume that will be published open access. So, for example, in my mm-hmm. case, um, I have a, a, a book out and a forthcoming one, both with Rutledge. Excellent publishers. Mm-hmm. I had a fantastic experience. Very pricey. Yes. And so, and so certainly the university libraries will have no trouble procuring the book for research purposes, but um, yes. certainly an interested student would not go and purchase it necessarily. And so, so yes. there's much to be said about open access. And as far as I recall, this is the first uh, open access book um, that I'm covering. So there you go. So enough about open and that's access. that's the distinction. <laughs> another distinction the first of um of uh 2020 officially and so <laughs> so here we are in a brave new world tell us about yeah. cow care and hindu animal ethics what is this book about uh well it's pretty much described in the title uh the broad theme is uh is animal ethics <clears throat> excuse me and uh this is also the title of the book series in which uh, this title is found. Uh, it's the Palgrave Macmillan Animal Ethics Book Series, which has at present 37 titles, including mine. Uh, and then uh, the editor of this series, Andrew Lindsay, who I know personally, invited me to write a book on the subject of Hinduism and animal ethics. Uh, And he encouraged me very strongly, and the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, what will be particularly interesting from many perspectives will be the issue of cows. Uh, And what I'm calling cow care uh, is, you could say, a translation of a somewhat traditional term uh, go seva, um, as a Sanskrit term, where seva is sometimes translated as service, but it has more of a sense of attending and caring for, uh, with here the implication being caring for them throughout their natural lives. Uh, and so I'm, I'm 
focusing on cows to open up uh, the subject, the broader subject of animal ethics through the lens, you could say, of uh, traditional Hindu thought. And what I mean by traditional is uh, specifically the the currents, uh, what I call paradigms of dharma, yoga, and bhakti. And what I'm trying to do is to bring these into conversation uh, with contemporary animal ethics discourse, uh, in particular animal rights, and then sort of on the side, uh, the idea of animal welfare. Uh, and then more specifically, what is has since recent times been uh, called uh, the ethics of care. So what do you look at as evidence? What What is your, you mentioned a Sanskrit term, and you do talk also about Sanskrit texts in the book, but tell us a little bit about your methods or your data. What are you looking at for your book? Yeah. Uh, I'm ranging rather widely. Uh, I'm starting in the first chapter with a kind of overview, a literary overview of texts, uh, going back to the Rig Veda and then coming up through uh, later texts, the Puranas, specifically the Bhagavata Purana, and into some um, pre-modern and modern uh, Hindi texts. It's it's a kind of whirlwind tour in order to see what patterns are there in what I call the Hindu imaginaire uh, of, of, of cows as, as somehow special animals. Uh, that's the first chapter. The second chapter is modern history, beginning with the late 19th century, uh, looking very briefly at w- what comes to be called the uh, cow protection movement, and then introducing uh, important figures, starting with uh, Dayanand Sarasvati, then Mohandas uh, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, then, as a kind of counter-voice, uh, B.R. Ambedkar. And then I, I end uh, with A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, uh, who is uh, the founder of what's popularly known as the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, then that's one half of the second chapter. And then I go back into earlier texts uh, to consider the modern controversy over uh, to what extent, if at all, uh, animal sacrifice has been performed according to uh, earlier texts. So that controversy I, I deal with, um, especially looking at the Manusmriti. In the third chapter, I move into the present-day situation in India. And for this, I did a bit of... Um, ethnography, uh, despite my lack of training in ethnography. Uh, I had traveled uh, here in India, uh, especially North India and Western India, and I visited uh, cow sanctuaries or goshamas and interviewed people who are engaged in these practices of 
what I'm calling Calcare. Um, I then move into what I would say is the heart of my book, where I'm discussing ethics. And for that, again, I'm going back to older texts, but I'm also referring to uh, contemporary Western discourse. Uh, so I'm especially uh, discussing uh, um, various writers, contemporary writers, including uh, Sue Donaldson and Will uh, Kimlicka in their book, uh, Zoopolis and uh, the work of, um, her name is slipping my mind now, uh, Brenda, Brenda Dalmia, uh, who discusses about um, the ethics of care. So like that. And then uh, with the next chapter, I, I am venturing into what I call the future of cow care. And for this, I'm looking specifically at two, what I call um, anticipatory communities. One of them uh, is right here where I am presently, north of Calcutta, at uh, the quite large uh, community of ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, where they have a Oshala of some 350 cows. And I also look at uh, one community in hung Hungary, which is also of the same organization of ISKCON. Uh, so I'm, I'm giving a sketch of both of these. Again, I did some interviewing. Uh, and um, then I go into a different sort of a phase, but maybe we, we discuss that toward the end because that's coming toward the end of the book. <laughs> So just to underscore for our listeners, there's a, there's a wide array of, of methods and, and data here where, where Kenneth is um, first looking at ancient classical Sanskritic texts to ascertain what he calls the Hindu imaginaire before moving on to doing um, uh, the early history of modern Hinduism, essentially looking at some key thinkers and their writings. Um, and then venturing off into doing some ethnographic work with people who are alive in the body right now, um, related to modern movements uh, on the globe uh, and and what we may call modern Hinduism or, or even new religious movements or social activism. So this is a this is obviously a huge range. I highlight this not in any way to critique it, but to to underscore. Um, ambition of such a breadth of methods uh, which which is fascinating uh, I often scratch my head as to why I didn't do ethnography myself <laughs> I, love, I love people and they're my primary um, passion and livelihood these days and then I read a passage in the Puranas of the Mahabharata I'm like oh this is why <laughs> this is why this 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 uh, uh, the, these tales are so gripping yeah. but uh, um, I'll, I'll touch on the uh, is this the first time you've done you've included ethnographic work as ha, have you primarily been trained as a textualist i am primarily trained as as a textualist uh, but for my doctoral research which was on a quite different topic i also did some uh, a bit of ethnography 
here in India, I was uh, interviewing priests at one particular temple in Vrindavan. So I don't know if you can call that experience. Let's take a look, um, maybe chronologically in the book, in terms of the Hindu imaginaire, tell us a bit more about what that means to you uh, as a concept. Um, and also tell us uh, what you conclude, what you find to be true of of of, of, of representations of, of, of cows in the Hindu imaginaire. Yeah. This, um, what I'm calling imaginaire, is, it's a term which probably traditional um, traditionalist Hindus would not be very happy with because uh, the, the term suggests imagination of something which is perhaps non-existent. I don't really mean it in that way, um, but I do want to uh, acknowledge that this is a textual, very much a textual survey a literary survey. And the question that led my survey was what sort of pattern or patterns are we going to find uh, in this vast um, history that's going over basically a 3,000-year or more period? Uh, is there going to be a, a consistent pattern or not? Uh, this is perhaps possibly because there are those who will say that uh, this idea of uh, cow protection, the cow protection movement, is a completely modern development. Uh, and yeah, something of my motivation is perhaps to question that. There does seem to be uh, a long-term stream, and although it's certainly with uh, various varied interpretation over time, I think it's uh, there is there there is also consistency. Um, what I came to conclude was that there are are two polarities, uh, and one polarity is uh, what I'm calling a, a value polarity between, on the one end, dharma, and on the other end, bhakti, where uh, the dharma concern is one of order of um, of responsiveness to a cosmic order, which is maintained in particular um, through the ritual processes, uh, especially centered in, in yagya, in what we usually translate as sacrifice. And on the other end of that polarity is bhakti, which is, well, it's about emotion, um, but it's about emotion which is directed in a certain way and which we could say is also about crossing over boundaries. And so what I'm suggesting is that cows end up somewhere in the middle uh, of, these, uh, of these boundaries, and at the same time they become objects uh, of well, objects of wonder, uh, going back to the Rig Veda, uh, and they become, at the same time, there are hints of them becoming not objects so much as subjects. And I think this is where uh, the bhakti value 
uh, becomes prominent, associating cows in particular with the divinity Krishna, and then the entire um, uh, theology that goes along with um, the uh, attention to Krishna and his his worship. And then uh, there's another polarity, and that is a polarity of meaning, where on the one side we have literal cows, one end of the polarity, and at the other end we have, uh, we may say, figurative cows. Uh, and this polarity is very prominent already in the Rig Veda, so that the Rig Veda is describing uh, persons who are owners of cows and are happy uh, to be the owners of cows and who want that these cows are protected and are considered well, uh, well situated because they have cows. And on the other um, extreme of the polarity, there are figurative cows. Uh, the, the rays of the dawn are cows, uh, the flowing waters which are released uh, by Indra from Vritra are cows. Uh, speech is cow, and it goes on and on, and it extends uh, to, to uh, sort of confound any effort to simplify what is even meant by the word cow. So that was so, the initial idea. If you could speculate, why would you conclude that the cow plays such a central role in um, Hindu culture? Um, certainly there are practical reasons uh, of utility that uh, cows were the source of wealth um, because uh, speaking of an agricultural or a pastoral society, uh, the ownership of cows was, was bringing well-being, especially uh, in the form, well, ritually with respect to milk uh, and, and for farming uh, through the, the powers of the bull to, to plow and so on. Um, that's, however, I would say that um, this is looking at the situation superficially. It's not re really telling uh, the deeper story, which is understood and which is indicated in this literature, that human well-being uh, has to do very much with uh, a relationship to nature, which in a sense is particularly mediated through cows. And we come back to the question, okay, but why cows and why not camels or what, you know? Uh, we, we can sort of persist with that question, but the answer of Hindus would generally be something like, well, that's the way it is. This is the higher arrangement, the higher divine arrangement. Cows are what they are uh, because of divine arrangement. They would also typically say <clears throat> that, uh, speaking of divinity, that divinity is uh, specifically present in cows in so many different forms, something which I discussed in the beginning of the second chapter. So 
tell us what you found out or included about um, animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice is was no doubt practiced. It has been practiced over the centuries um, up to recent times. There are references to it uh, in Jaipur area uh, in the 18th century uh, of, of the common era. Um, and we, we hear reports of uh, different kinds of sacrifice going on at the present time. Uh, this sort of grand rituals that were performed according to the texts uh, in ancient times. I would say there's no reason to believe that they did not happen. How often uh, they they would have happened is certainly uh, difficult to ascertain, uh, but there's no reason to believe that they would not have happened. Um, what we find in a somewhat later text, the Dharma Shastra, in particular Manusmriti, is an interesting mix of positions. First of all, it acknowledges very much that uh, rituals of animal sacrifice are going on, and it's approving of such uh, performances, rituals, in the sense that it's uh, it's saying. If you want to um, be following Dharma with respect to the killing of animals, then you have no choice but to do so in the ritual context of the formal sacrifice. And if you do other, uh, otherwise, uh, you risk very serious um, karmic reactions, we may say. So certainly the, uh, these um, activities were going on, and at the same time there was an increased sense that um, this is somehow not ideal, perhaps that it is excessive, uh, perhaps that it should be stopped altogether, but never is it said that um, the Vedic injunctions should be rejected they may be um, substituted when injunction is there to sacrifice an animal. There may be a uh, substitution uh, with non-animal uh, substance, with, uh, with ghee, with, uh, with grain, and so on. But it's never... Um, the Veda is always sacrosanct. It's always something which is somehow non-negotiable. So in setting setting the stage, talking about cows in the Hindu imagine the Arab and 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 certainly um, why they're significant for the culture and and, and even in the context of um, religious sacrifice. Uh, tell us about these um, these 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 Hindu figures, these voices that you weave into your work. Um, uh, Gandhi's Dhyana uh, Saraswati Pedkar. What are they saying, and why is it important for your work? Um, yes. First, Dayananda Saraswati, uh, from the late 19th century. He is better known for his founding of the Arya Samaj, uh, wrote a 15-page tract um, 
on uh, on cow protection, and I'm introducing him because it seems that this tract was highly influential, uh, going beyond uh, the sphere of his own followers of the Arya Samaj, and it seems to have set in motion uh, something of um, uh, a chain reaction of organizations being uh, established for for cow protection. Uh, so he, he very much marks, in, in a way, the beginning of this modern movement that becomes the cow protection movement. Gandhi is interesting because although he is especially uh, celebrated and known for his... Uh, is emphasis on ahimsa, nonviolence with respect to uh, political action uh, and activism. In his writings, I would argue that he did not separate this from what he considered um, part of part of the same activity of nonviolence, which was to be nonviolent with respect to animals and in particular cows. Now, both Gandhi and uh, Dayanand Saraswati identified their concern for cows with Hinduism. Ambedkar brings in, as I said, a kind of counter voice, because as we well know, Ambedkar uh, was quite at odds with Gandhi on uh, particular issues, uh, especially uh, untouchability. And this is relevant for our discussion because Ambedkar wrote a whole book on the subject of uh, untouchability and its origins, and in that he discusses this matter of meat-eating and how it is identified with with the so-called outcasts or untouchables. And he speculates on how that came about in such a way uh, through uh, the development of Buddhism, in such a way that uh, the Brahmins of the Hindu, uh, the Hindu traditions, uh, essentially wanted to be one better than the Buddhists by being more nonviolent than the Buddhists. Uh, with the side effect, if you like, uh, that uh, the lower caste, those who were depending, uh, for example, on uh, preparing hides uh, from dead cows, became uh, became outcasts, became uh, held in their positions of being untouchables, uh, what we now call Dalits. Uh, the the fourth person that I mentioned contrasts with all three of the the first three, Bhaktivedanta Swami, uh, because his concern is not with cows in relation to Hinduism, but rather his concern is with cows in relation to what he would identify as Sanatan Dharma, um, or with what he would call Vedic tradition, 
using that term in a broad sense, uh, or um, more specifically, he would identify with his own tradition, the Vaishnava tradition. Uh, and uh, in this context, Bhaktivedanta Swami and his missionary uh, activity of bringing uh, that tradition outside of India also encouraged his followers to establish farm communities in which cows would be uh, kept, would be cared for for life, and significantly would not be uh, distinguished as so-called deshi cows or indigenous cows of India, but rather uh, any cows, both Taurus or both Indicas, was not the issue for him. Uh, so all of these together uh, present a kind of uh, overview and sketch of what is certainly a much more complex situation of, uh, of modern history of cow protection. But my, my purpose is just to give uh, somewhat impressionistic, but I think nonetheless uh, helpful perspective on the modern situation. So tell us about the modern situation. Uh, there's a number of, of points of entry, uh, but I think it should be clear already from this discussion, from this discussion, that um, the, that the notion of animal rights um, is particularly nuanced and and perhaps even um, uh, it, it's it's very different in this in this case. This isn't just a situation of the way in which we think of animal rights in the West. Would you agree with that? Mm. Yes, uh, animal rights has been promoted in the West based on uh, on ethical thinking that goes back to you know the Enlightenment, uh, where the kind of reasoning that goes into the rights understanding, uh, I would say, is is very legalistic. Uh, it's a very legalistic approach, uh, which, yeah, you can also trace back to ethics. Um, well, it's it's a response to Aristotle, ultimately, um, where Aristotle uh, did not think that animals had any rights. Uh, the The whole notion of rights you can trace to more recent times with uh, the uh, the development of human rights in in various spheres, to the point where we start to question: Well, why only humans? Uh, why not also animals? Since animals are sentient beings, uh, the the granting of moral status to animals uh, is is a key idea here. So I don't want to say that uh, animal rights discourse in India is completely divorced from that. I don't think we can make uh, a sharp separation because um, animal ethics discourse in India has been also very much influenced by Western thought uh, because of um, uh, India being part because of India being uh, very much involved uh, with European discourse since the last two hundred years. So, tell us about your your, your the case studies. Tell us about the ethnographic work. 
What have you discovered? I, uh, as I said, I met with uh, various uh, people who are involved with, in particular, I visited people who uh, who are managers of what are called goshalas. Uh, goshala means essentially a shelter or a sanctuary for cows. And um, the questions I had were on the one side practical questions, what's involved in the management and in particular what's involved in the economics of these institutions, how are they supported, and so on. Uh, and I wanted to get a sense of their their mentality. What is motivating them uh, to, to do what they're doing? Uh, I met people who have very small number of cows. Uh, as uh, I met one lady from Germany, who is right here where I am now in uh, Mayapur, uh, who has been keeping around 10 cows uh, by herself uh, over many years. I also met with the leader on the other extreme uh, um, in southwest uh, Rajasthan. Uh, I met uh, a person who is uh, the inspiration for it. He doesn't manage himself, but he's the uh, inspiration for an organization, Patmeda, which has some 45,000 cows. Uh, and then I met also near Delhi, uh, one manager who is a retired uh, brigadier general, a manager of uh, a uh, NGO combination uh, with, it's called a PPP, public-private, um, I forget, institution, which has some 3,000 cows. So a, a wide range of numbers of cows. Many of these places are rescue operations. Uh, and this is interesting because it shows uh, the let's say, the disconnect that's happening very much in India as a result of its very fast um, modernization, uh, industrialization, and so on, that we see uh, so many cows wandering the streets. And uh, because now there's a rapid increase in the number of cars, the amount of traffic on the roads, more and more and more of these cows get injured. Uh, although there is a tradition in India of respecting cows and being careful not to harm them, uh, it seems that people are becoming more and more careless. And so uh, these these cows are uh, typically they will be rescued and they'll be brought into one of these. Uh, shelters where they will receive some treatment and where they may then remain for the rest of their lives. Um, also, a, a related phenomenon with cows wandering the streets is that uh, because they have nothing for their nourishment, then, uh, then the garbage 
in various garbage collection points. And because that garbage is typically uh, having food which is within plastic bags, we find that cows are eating not only the food but also the plastic bags. And what is that doing? It's going into their stomach, their stomachs, and eventually it's killing them. Um, so we have this rather odd situation in India of on the one peop- on the one side people uh, will um, readily say that uh, cows are in some way special. Perhaps they're even uh, to be revered. Perhaps even worshipable. And on the other side, we see so many cows are are neglected. Uh, they are they don't seem to be prized at all, but quite the opposite. The Goshalas are an attempt to respond to that. And I have to say, this is a, a, a as I see it, a stopgap effort. Uh, it's not really addressing uh, the bigger issue in. Uh, the early 1970s, there was a major push in India uh, by the central government to develop the um, the dairy industry, and this effort was extremely successful. By uh, the 1990s, India was uh, measured as having the largest dairy industry in the world. Now, this was, of course, very good for the dairy industry and for the uh, owners of the cows uh, giving the milk. But uh, if we then ask, so what happens to those cows when they are giving less milk and then giving no milk? And of course, the answer is they will be sold uh, for slaughter. And so what I suggest in this book is that um, we have to see the dairy industry as an extension of the meat and leather industry. And as it turns out, the meat and leather industry are substantial industries in India. Um, And uh, this is, again, uh, somewhat, I would say, an anomaly for India. Um, the uh, speaking with uh, these people, I was I was very much struck by their their dedication, their conviction that cows are that to care for cows is a special kind of responsibility, a duty of human beings. Uh, some of them uh, at times would wax um, poetic and very devotional. Uh, about uh, the need for dedication um, for their care. And also, I found it interesting uh, the sorts of um, benefits that they would speak of, uh, of having cares beyond uh, the, the more physical benefits that are usually referred to, having, having the milk uh, and also, much is spoken of, of the cow dung as being particularly uh, valuable for regenerating soil. Beyond these 
values, uh, they spoke of what I call intangible values uh, or intangible benefits. Simply having cows is bringing human well-being. It's bringing peacefulness. It's bringing a balanced life. It's bringing economic uh, balance as a kind of side effect. So these sorts of ideas were very much expressed. So in terms of um, these officials and these cow care projects, would you say that they were motivated by what you would call um, Hindu piety? To what extent would you say that's the case? That's a, that their prime motivation is inextricable from um, their conception of being a Hindu or even latching on to what you mentioned as uh, resonating with the Hindu imaginaire? Yes, there's certainly... Um, a lot of identification with being Hindu. And this is something that I am concerned about in the book, is what is their understanding of being Hindu? Uh, I would say to a large extent, uh, this becomes unfortunately very much uh, tied in with Hindutva, with uh, this sort of politicized notions of Hindu Hindu tradition or Hinduism, uh, which turns into, of course, the uh, very dark side of communalism. Uh, and uh, indeed, they would often say that when we speak of cows, we mean deshi cows, we mean Indian cows. Um, even uh, I came across a, a video of a speech of one very senior um, uh, government official pronouncing this publicly, exactly, almost exactly in these words. When we mean cows, we mean deshi cows, and we don't care what happened to what happens to your uh, Western so-called cows. Uh, this, I think, is uh, is a misunderstanding. Uh, who am I to say as an outsider, but I will say anyway <laughs> that I find this uh, a misunderstanding of the tradition itself. Um, if we go back uh, to the, um, well, if we go back to the Bhagavad Gita, which Hindus will certainly identify with, which of course uh, never uses the word Hindu, uh, what we find is uh, what's being celebrated is a vision of equality in which all beings, uh, whether cow or elephant or dog or so-called dog eater or Brahman, all are seen uh, with uh, by the samadarshan, by the person who sees equally. Uh, so, yes, they do identify very much with being Hindu to a large extent. Uh, they're they're are exceptions, um, but uh, there is that tendency today in India to make that identification. Hindu, a, someone who cares for cows is a Hindu. Someone who is Hindu cares for cows. Something. So, if we if we can bracket off for a moment, perhaps some of the more extreme tendencies of. You know, only deshi cows are a value. Um, would you say then? Uh, how do I how do I phrase the question? 
Um, so it really is only the cow among all creatures in India that could elicit this sort of um, care, the narration even. Would you say that is the case? Oh, um, well, I don't think we can make absolutes like that. We, we, we have people who are extremely concerned about other animals. Uh, elephants, for example, mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, people who are very, very much concerned about uh, elephants being endangered and being mistreated. Um, I don't know. There, there are certainly other animals. A contrast might be made. In India, of course, you'll see dogs everywhere being uh, very much uh, sort of neglected, and they're just street dogs and so on. Uh, but then, um, just a few days ago, I was in Ahmedabad. We visited one Jain animal hospital where they were treating dogs, um, you know, with the greatest of devotion, one could say, and where they were lining up uh, to... Um, they were preparing for a sudden uh, influx of birds uh, because I don't know if this is all over India, but uh, around um, this time there is this kite flying festival and uh, they fly kites using string uh, which has glass powder. And this glass powder they why they do this is they're competing. They're trying to cut the string of another kite. But as a result, they're cutting also the wings of birds. And so this particular uh, shelter or animal hospital I visited said they expect some 2,000 birds to be brought in in the course of a few days. That's incredible. Um, what, um, what would you hope... Uh... What do you tend as the main takeaway or the main takeaways of this fascinating book? Uh, the main takeaway, I would say, is can we uh, kind of step back from the animal ethics discourse as it's been spoke, as it's been articulated in the West to bring in other voice, other voices in this case uh, from the... I use this word Hindu guardedly because uh, it is problematic in so many ways, but from the Hindu tradition out of convenience using that term, uh, can we benefit from uh, some sources or resources of that tradition? And I'm, again, calling attention to the Dharma, Yoga, and bhakti traditions, and specifically what I want to suggest the uh, contribution of these might be is a metaphysics uh, to undergird or to, uh, to, to serve in some sort of foundational way to our concern that um, animals' sentience uh, is, is being... Um, it is being ignored or it is that animals are suffering at the hands of human beings in such vast numbers. Uh, just cows, um, cows alone, the number is some 300 million 
uh, being slaughtered per year. Uh, that's not to speak of all the other types of animals. But I want to suggest that there's a certain vision here that if we can sort of brush aside uh, the superficialities, uh, the misunderstandings of some elements of modern Hinduism, that could actually help us to think more deeply and more uh, 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 effectively to address a problem which is not just about feeling good in our ethics, but which is about uh, getting our, our, our planet back into some semblance of, uh, of natural balance. Uh, and um, the fact that human beings on this planet have made it uh, a, common, a commonhood uh, that we eat meat uh, as much as we like uh, and in particular of, of cows, in this situation, uh, it's becoming more, more and more clear uh, that this has to change. But we need some sort of philosophical, theological backing, I would say, to, uh, to bring us forward. And I'm, I'm just hoping this book will contribute something to that. A lot more needs to be uh, said than I've said in this book. This is by no means the last word. <laughs> uh, a lot needs to be said about the ac- uh, the economics uh, of uh, of cow care than I was able to manage with this book. Maybe that's going to be a second book. I don't know. And perhaps when it's out, we'll be speaking about it on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, so thank you very much. We've been speaking today with uh, Kenneth Valpe. Um who is a research uh, fellow at was the Oxford Center for Hinduism? Yeah, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. For Hindu Studies, that's right. Um, we've been speaking about, of course, his fascinating new book, "Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics," which is available open access uh, via the link um, in the description of this podcast. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Can I add one more little? Uh, request to the audience. Of course. <laughs> uh, if anyone would be interested in reviewing the book uh, for a journal, that would be much appreciated. Okay, then. Um, so uh, how shall they shall they contact you, or what is your request? I would suggest uh, they download the book, uh, and uh, if they can do a review based on the on the electronic version of the book, that makes it, uh, that would be the easiest. And otherwise, yes, they could contact me. Okay, once again, uh, we're speaking with um, Kenneth Valpe on his new book, Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. Um, thank you very much. And until next time, keep reading.